flip to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Our message today is called A New Husband. So if you open up, we'll read the text and I will pray and we'll go from there. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. These are the words of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her husband. So then she will be called an adulteress if she marries another man while her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she would not be an adulteress if she marries another man. Verse 4. So, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be married to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, so that we may bear fruit for God. When we were in the flesh, the passions of sin through the law worked in our members to bear fruit leading to death. But now we are delivered from the law, having died to things in which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy God, we have assembled today for, your, for the purposes of your kingdom. Um, we desire to magnify your great grace as we recall to mind everything uh, that we have is because of your generosity towards us. So we also acknowledge that we are in the midst of a great chastisement, for we have wandered from your commands, even twisting scripture in order to do so. Help us understand your word, we pray in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So we're back in our study of Romans this week, and, and actually as the week last week unfolded, I, I was undecided on what it was I was going to cover. I didn't even make that decision until Friday when I sat down to write. And uh, I had considered just doing the entire chapter in, in one week, but I felt that maybe I really couldn't do justice to the passage itself. Um, you know, whenever you're working through the Bible, there are millions of different things you could emphasize, millions, millions of different ways you could go about it. And you could focus on different things. You know, I could almost next year go back through Romans and focus on different aspects, such as the curse of expository preaching, I guess. Or the challenge, I should say. It's not a curse. It's just a challenge. At any rate, so this week we're going to cover verses 1 through 6. And next week, Lord willing, we'll do verses 7 through 25, which you should just know up front, 7 through 25 is very, very controversial anyway. So buckle up. Uh, that'll be next week, Lord willing. So I want you to kind of think of our time here in this section today as being more of a preface of what we're going to cover next week. It's, how, it's Paul's setting himself up here, so it's almost like a preface, if you will, to the rest of chapter 7. I think in the mind of Paul, this is one giant stream of consciousness anyway, and um, he would have just said it. It would have been written down and then delivered, and I, I think he just sort of goes for it. And uh, if you're familiar at all with the Greek language, sometimes his sentences are very, 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 very long. Uh, he just sort of goes for it. So that's, that's the Apostle Paul. So it's one giant stream of consciousness, but for us, it's one section at a time. You know, the Roman Christians didn't have a Bible that you have in front of you with cute sections and cross-references. It was just one long letter, and that's how it would have been. But for us, um, I would suggest maybe reading ahead for next week just to get the context. Maybe you can do that this week at some point or tonight. 
if you so choose. So a couple, couple of things um, up front. Remember where we're at in the book of Romans. Abraham was discussed in chapter 4. The whole section of chapter 4 was about Abraham and why it matters that Abraham was justified by faith alone. Why did God count it to him as righteousness? That sort of thing. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul brings up this thrice problematic issue facing humanity, Jews and Gentiles included. There's this triangular problem, this thrice problem. Three things are plaguing mankind. They are Adam, sin, and law. Okay, Adam, sin, and law. And the law part we're going to hit on too because this passage is confusing. Um, Well, it's confusing if you're um, an evangelical uh, today who doesn't hear much about the law. But Adam, sin, and law is kind of this threefold issue. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. He says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death, why is there a death, uh, a sting in death? It's sin. But he also says the strength of sin is the law. So he brings up two of the things we're talking about. And then later, uh, or earlier, I should say, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So he's working with these ideas about Adam. Adam's important for us. Sin is an important thing to think about. And for some reason, the law does something in this Trinitarian problem, if you will. Adam, sin, and law. The problem with law, as we discussed in chapter 6, is our being condemned by it. So we shouldn't have a problem with the law, but the law gives us a problem. Those who are in Adam, who are dead in their sins, they are condemned by the law. The law comes in to increase the trespass. So in other words, if, if you have lust in your heart, or you have lied, or you have stolen something, the law comes in to increase the trespass. It comes in to say, yeah, actually, that's really bad. That was really wrong. So that's why it condemns those who are underneath the weight of it, those who are sinners apart from Christ. So I, I mentioned this contextual point to emphasize what it is that Paul has been tracing here and something he traces through many of his letters, especially 1 Corinthians 15 there. I think it's, we need to know it's something that's central to his doctrinal convictions. This is not some sort of rabbit trail doctrine. Why is he bringing up Adam? Why is he bringing up sin? Why is he keeps, he keeps harping on the law? Why does he keep talking about this in the, in the letter to Romans? Well, it's central to his convictions. It's not some side note here. This is Pauline theology at its most um, purest, if you will. So the contrast between Adam's sin and law, on the one hand, so that's kind of the, the uh, thrice problematic issue, Adam, sin, and law. There's a contrast, though, on the other side with a positive thing being Christ, grace, spirit. So you have the problem of Adam, sin, and law, and then you have Christ, the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit. So you have these warring things here that Paul is, is, is explaining. So it's not a footnote. Those are massive things we have to deal with. Paul is convinced that Adam is outshined by Christ, that sin's inexorable transgressing is supplanted by the grace of God, and that the law's condemnation is replaced by the Spirit's implantation of the law of God in the hearts of, of his people. So Adam, Christ. Christ outshines him. Sin, grace. Grace takes care of the sin. Law as a condemnatory feature, 
law as implanted in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You're not under its condemnation. You are under its favor now. It's a way of life. It's a guiding, a guidance for us. That's why we value the law of God. So that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes these three problems, fixes it with these three answers. That's the, that's the solution. And so we have in this section an emphasis on the covenant, and the covenant is here going to be illustrated in the covenant of marriage, and what happens when the covenant is dissolved. Now, this is going to be fun today. I kind of laughed last night tidying it up, because this is going to be really entertaining, I think. Paul's main point is that the dissolution of the covenant in Adam is replaced by the covenant of Messiah. So we know that. We read the Old Testament. Here's Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the law. That doesn't mean it goes away. It just means it's transformed in some way. There's a transformation that happens. And that was brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And the reason the Holy Spirit comes is so that we could bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's his, that's his logic. So in chapter 6, Paul emphasized that in Adam, sin reigns. That's chapter 6, verse 14. But in Christ, we died to sin. That's chapter 6, verse 2. He also says that we're free from sin three times in chapter 6. We're freed from sin, verse 7, 8, 18, and 22. And now we get to this other issue. So that was sin in Adam. Now we have law in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he says the law reigns there in verse 1, but in Christ we died to the law, verse 4. And he also says that we're free from the law in verse 6. Now, this is a very difficult passage in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I'm treading new ground in some regard, personally, just diving through it this week. Um, so I don't, have, <laughs> I don't have time in my busy bivocational life to read mountains and mountains of commentaries. So I can neither confirm nor deny the novelty of what it is I'm about to say. So... Uh, I could get tarred and feather later, maybe. No, I don't, I don't think that to be the case. So let's, let's look at our passage real quick and just kind of summarize as we go. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, Paul begins by explaining who it is he's speaking to, to those who know the law and have a vested interest in the law, the Torah. That's verse 1. He asks the question, don't you know? Uh, the ESV gets it right. Or, don't you know, the word or is there for a reason because he's continuing his thought from chapter 6. Or, don't you know, that's the same thing as arguing, surely you find this agreeable. Surely this is something we can, you know, meet in the middle on. Don't you know? The Torah has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Note that. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. In other words... When a person is born, he is born in Adam as long as he lives in that state. When you're born into this world, you're, you're born in Adam. And when you're born in Adam, you don't get out of that while you're still alive. And the reason is, what did God promise Adam in the garden? If you partake of this fruit, you will surely die. And that's not an empty threat. You must die. You will die. That's what his promise was. And Adam died, you know, what, 900 years later. But the death that he's speaking of is the death of the covenant. You will die. You will break covenant with me. You will be estranged from the covenant. Things will go bad. You will then have to eat the nasty fruit, the real nasty fruit of breaking the covenant. So Adam is the old husband, okay? Adam is the old husband. 
As long as you live, as long as you have breath in your lungs and blood pumping through your veins, you are married. That is, you are in covenant with Adam. That's his emphasis here. This is the de facto position of the entire human race. Simple enough? Okay, he goes on. The woman who has a husband is bound by covenant law as long as her husband lives. Okay, so the, the husband in here is Adam. We're the bride, we're the wife, we're the wives of Adam. All right, so we're bound by that as long as Adam lives, as long as that covenant is in this state of emergency that it is. But if her husband dies, if her husband dies, the covenant is broken and the law no longer has jurisdictional binding authority anymore. That's verse 2. By the way, Paul is no doubt striking at the heart of Roman culture. In Roman culture, women were controlled and dominated by their husbands. Okay? They had a, a very hyper-patriarchal setup in Roman culture and women were treated like worse than slaves in some regard. So he's striking at the heart of that. They had little to no value. They really had not, not much of a purpose. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, he's also referencing Deuteronomy 24, which Emberly read, which speaks of marriage and divorce and covenantal death and those types of concepts. So the main point here is that death releases a person from the obligation of the covenant law. Okay? So just like a marriage covenant, the person dies, the covenant is broken, there was a covenantal death, there are no further jurisdictional binding authority on that. All right? So death made the covenant null and void. And we'll come back to this. Now remember that Paul wants to frame his theology by answering this question. Who was the Torah for? What was the law for? Was it for Israel or is it for those in the Messiah? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> it's for everyone. But the bigger problem is not Jew-Gentile. The bigger problem is Adam Christ. That's the main issue. So, basic to biblical law and doctrine is the fact that if the woman marries another, striking another covenant with another person, another husband, without the death of the first covenant, then she's an adulteress. Which is, he's speaking in, in covenantal larger terms, not just explaining marriage. But that is, that is true. There are things that break the covenant and things that don't. If the covenant is not broken the way God says it should be broken, okay, then you're not just free to go and you know, marry your sixth husband because you have a, a laundry list of, of, of a train wreck. But if the covenant is broken, think of adultery, think of um, abuse, think of abandonment. Paul gives those categories. If it's broken and it can be healed by Christ, but it can also not be further healed and it is what it is what it is but he's not really talking primarily about christian marriage here there's something underneath it it's an illustration so in verse three if her husband dies she is free from that law which means she wouldn't be an adulteress if she marries another man now he explains the analogy here in, in verse four those of us in christ we have died to torah the law because of the body of christ Christ's crucifixion and death is our crucifixion and death. All right? If you're in Christ, his death is our death. We die with him. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Right? That's Paul's theology. Which means that the legal and judicial death 
our death with the body of Christ means that we are released from the prior covenant with Adam. Okay, so note that. We're released from the prior covenant with Adam, and now we are married to another. And who is our new husband? Christ. We're the bride of Christ. He is our new husband. He was raised from the dead. And the reason he was raised from the dead, verse 4, note this, is so that we may bear fruit for God. While in the flesh, in the quandary of Adam's sin law, and the fruit of that being death, the law aroused or stirred up the passions of sin, which begets more sin and frustration. That's verse 5. And that's the problem with the first marriage. The first marriage with Adam has all sorts of problems. We and Adam keep having horrible children. That's the fruit. Our marriage to Adam, our covenant with Adam, being in Adam, as he explained earlier in Romans 5, means that we produce unholy fruit, unrighteous fruit. You, and there's plenty of that to go on as we look at the state of our country right now. It's a lot of unrighteous fruit happening. So the new husband, Christ Jesus, here in verse 6, has delivered us from the law's condemnation. He's brought us out of being condemned from the law. We have died to the things to which we were bound. He doesn't say, and this is where evangelicals today just go hog wild. See, we're died to the law. It doesn't matter anymore. Why are you theonomists talking about who will build the roads or who will, who, how should a governor be righteous? Why are you crazy wacko theonomists interested in abortion so much and gun rights and so on and so forth? Well, because we don't hold that presupposition that the law is just magically gone and done away with. In dying with Christ and being raised with Christ, we now serve in the newness and reviving experience of the Spirit, no longer bound to the previous marriage, which was marked by the oldness of the letter of law. So the law doesn't just go away. You've just been brought from being underneath its weight in condemnation. In Adam, you've now been sit up, you're sitting up straight in Christ. The Spirit puts that law in your heart, and now you are to go and labor for justice and righteousness. It doesn't just magically go away. So don't misread what Paul's suggesting here. So in light of that, how do we understand, how do we understand this passage? This is where it's going to get interesting. <laughs> so the first marriage is a relationship between all men and women and children and the old Adam. All right? That's Paul's point here. When you're in Christ, you're, he's the new husband. But when you're in Adam, he's your husband. And according to Romans 5, Adam was the federal head. He was the representative of the entire human race. So his sin and thus our sin meant that we were this unhappily married couple bearing the fruit of death and rebellion. That's what it does. That's the, that's the covenantal marriage that being in Adam gives you. Nothing but death, rebellion, you know, Cain kills Abel, things go sideways very fast. And then you have this side common in Genesis 6, and the, the hearts of men were only evil continually. So what does God do? He floods the earth and he washes it clean. So in this analogy, it's important for us to note that the husband is not the law. All right? The husband is not the law here. And that the law doesn't die. This is a misreading of Romans 7. The law does not die here. Too many Christians think that the law dies and it goes away when it comes to when one comes to Christ. And it's utterly absurd. It's nonsense. 
the law, as we'll see, if you want to skip down to verse 12 real quick, you can see it. We'll talk about it next week. But the law is holy, just, and good. See it in your text? Underline it. Okay? The law is holy, just, and good. But never forget this. Never forget that the difference between a good and healthy marriage and one that is shipwrecked is not the covenant law itself. Just because there are bad marriages doesn't mean we abandon the concept of marriage. It's not the covenant law that's the problem here. It's the persons involved in the marriage. When the law, what the law of God does is keep the covenant intact. The law teaches you how to be a godly husband, how to be a godly wife. The law, in the context of God's law, brings blessing. You have children. You bear fruit. There are blessings involved with obedience to the law. The law is not the problem. It's never been the problem. We're the problem. So get that through your head today because too many Christians misread this passage. So it keeps the, co- the law keeps the covenant intact. And if the covenant is shipwrecked because of the persons involved, it's because of the persons involved. It's because of the constituents there. It's not a bug that's built into the law itself. Well, my marriage doesn't work now. I guess God's idea of marriage is a joke. No, that's not the issue. You're the issue. So welcome to Marriage Counseling 101. So Paul's point is that you can't, you can't just leave your marriage in Adam and avoid the penalty of the law for, for doing that would be adultery. That's his analogy. You don't just magically wave a wand. Well, in this case, we have pride parades and such that we get to magically wave a wand and say, well, we're not bound by God and his law and well, how he defines human sexuality and marriage and so on. What you are watching is adultery on, on the streets because people are trying to get out of their marriage with Adam without having to die to their sins. They're trying to get out of their marriage with Adam. They're trying to get out of the covenant, and they can't. And that's why they choose the word pride to parade in their state of rebellion and sin. But Paul says in verse 5 that that's adultery. They're trying to be married to another. They're try- they can't get out of the Adam covenant and they're not going to get into the Christ covenant, so they're going to have their own covenant, and their covenant is with death. In order to be free from that covenant, the covenant must be dissolved, which means that the woman in the example needs a dead husband. I know, that sounds... I laughed too when I wrote that. Okay, that is funny. She needs a dead husband to get out of the covenant, right? So think, think here. Adam is the one who has to die in order for her to be free. How do you get out of the Adam-sin law problem? Adam has to die. I think he chooses this analogy on purpose. He's not saying that you have to die, though that is true. We have to die with Christ to get out of the Adam covenant. He's also saying that Adam himself has to die. So the illustration can be tricky, so, so make sure we get this here. Adam himself, as a federal representative, Adam was a Christian, by the way. He was a Christian. He died eventually, right? Lived, nine, was it, 932 years, I think? He died. So Adam died physically, but guess what else Adam did when he confessed the faith, faith of Christ? Looking forward to Christ. He died covenantally. 
he died to the covenant that he had broken in the garden. So he died covenantally in Christ. And this comes out in 1 Corinthians 15. I referenced it earlier. Adam and everything that he brought into the world, everything that Adam brought into the world, all of his descendants, all the sin, all the pollution, all the stains, all of it died in Christ too. And this happens so that another human race, another human race could walk in the Spirit being a new humanity, which we've already covered. So we are a new humanity. And our job is to go out and tell the old humanity that there's a better way. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to be fruitful and multiply. You can't be fruitful and multiply with your pomo homo stuff. You can't do it. It's death. The worldview dies with you. There's a better way, a righteous way, a godly way, a true way. Not one built on lust and rebellion and doing your own thing. There's a better way to be a human being, and it's a human being made in the image of Christ, who's renewed into the image of Christ. So the problem isn't the law, the problem isn't the covenant, but the representation in the covenant. Adam failed, but Christ, we know, has not failed. When the law comes in, it simply enforces the terms and conditions of the covenant. Was God a big meanie when he kicked Adam out of the garden? I mean, he could have sulked and said that, oh God, you're just a big meanie. No, you broke covenant. You disobeyed. The law came in now and, and, and doled out all the sanctions. The law came along and, and you now are disfellowshipped from me. And in God's mind, I'm going to get Christ though and we're going to bring you back. That's his, his mindset. But the sanctions of the law are real. So when you're dead in your sins and when you're married to the old husband, Adam, we bear the fruit of that disreputable relationship. We bear the fruit of it. Humanity is the wife. Adam died in Christ, which means we die in Christ and thus we are raised to new life. A brand new covenant is cut, the blood of Christ being the foundation, and a new husband has taken over as the head of the marriage. That's the gospel. The gospel says we have a new husband. Christ is the new husband. So the law in this case simply proved and ensured the first, first marriage stayed together. Think of it this way. You're in Adam. You're married to Adam. You're dead in your sins. And all you can do is bear the fruit of unrighteousness and addiction and all these other things, right? And the law comes in to do what? Enforce that reality. So that's why God gives sanctions for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through, what is it, 58. So the, the, all sanctions against it. If you want to be in Adam, you want to be in that covenant, then the law is going to come in and make sure that you taste the fruit. That's what the law does. It makes the first marriage stay together. In other words, the law of God condemns those who cannot and will not obey it. All of those in Adam. Now, it is important to note that the emphasis here is not a change in law, though that is part of it. It's not like God changed his standards. We were talking about this earlier, Keith and I. We had this view of, well, God's angry in the Old Testament, and then the, he saw a, an MD and got his medication squared away, and now he's just nicer in the New Testament. And that's how many people view the God of the Bible. But that's not at all the case. There's no, there's no change in law, generally speaking, from the Old Testament to the New. There's a change in the administration of it, but there's not a change in the law. The emphasis is the change in the covenant relationship. 
The emphasis is the change in the marriage. The marriage in Adam is dissolved, and that same law that upheld that old marriage now upholds the new marriage. So the law didn't change. The marriage didn't change. The covenant members changed. Adam is swapped out by Christ. You're still in covenant. You're still in a marriage. You still have a law to obey. None of that changed. Your status in the covenant changed because you had a better husband. So the difference is our new husband isn't a wimpy loser who wants to sit on his butt all day smashing Red Bulls and eating Doritos. That's Adam. That's Adam. Just to paint you a picture. Uh, Christ is a better husband than Adam was. My apologies for the metaphor um, (laughs) or the picture. Now, I mentioned earlier that it isn't the law that dies. It's not the law that dies. When you came to Christ, the law didn't die. You died. You are the one who died to its condemnation. You died to the negative sanction of, of the law. The sanctions of the law were brought into this world because of Adam's disobedience. And in Adam, we all know, we disobeyed too. No one gets to say, had I been there, I would not have allowed my wife to do such a grotesque thing by listening to the serpent. No, you would have been there. You would have done the same thing. That's the point the Bible makes repeatedly. So the sanctions were there. God, uh, Adam disobeyed. God's law came in, did what it did to ensure, um, to ensure that the marriage would be intact the way it should be. Now, note the analogy here. It connects to verse 4 about us dying to the law. A wife whose husband dies, dies to the covenant law, right? The covenant's over. That's his argument. Or we could say, in one sense, that the law is dead to her. Does that make sense? Her husband died, but now, in a sense, she died. She died to the covenant that was made. So think of it in those terms. With with the husband dead, the law is now null and void. You're out of the marriage. It's done. The one person you were in covenant with has died. The marriage is, is done. You've died to it. So it, it doesn't apply. So I think what Paul is suggesting here is this. Adam died in Christ, just like you and I had to. Adam himself, as a historical individual with a real person, with a real wife named Eve, okay, in a real Garden of Eden, That Adam and all of his people that are in Christ had to die, which means we die in Christ too. And this means that the condemnation of law has died to us. We died to the negative sanctions. The negative sanctions died to us. So the covenant law in this respect uh, did die, though the law doesn't magically go away. So it's kind of a lot of stuff. We need to make sure that we have this straight because Christians are very confused by statements like this, and it doesn't help that they don't understand covenant theology, generally speaking. Um, unless you have a, a, a good reformed backing and an understanding of covenant law, this is so confusing. This is so confusing. When they see something like, well, we're not under law, but we're under grace from Romans 6, you know, they scratch their heads. They avoid the hard exegesis, and then they just become functional antinomians, get to do whatever they want. But we must not do this. 
What Paul intends to communicate is that there is a certain aspect of the Torah in which we do die. The aspect of the law that we die to is that which regulates our union with the old husband. That's the law that dies. If we're, not, if we're no longer in Adam because we're in Christ, then we're no longer held by that law or to that law or that regulation. That marriage has been severed. Okay? It's dissolved. It doesn't exist. Your marriage in Adam is gone. It's null and void. It's not there. It doesn't exist anymore because Christ died and you died with him. So he's not saying that the law of God was a great idea, but now that you know Jesus came, we can throw off the righteous justice, uh, standards of justice and righteousness of God's law. We can just throw it out the window, and now we get to actually be free because then we get to live however we want. And isn't that great? That's grace. No, it's not. It's not that the dominion and authority of the law goes away. See, think of it in in these terms. You've been taught now for a long time, and you've read, perhaps, and you know that there's no neutrality in the world. So it's not whether we will have dominion and authority, but which dominion and authority will we have? You start teaching that out there. It's not the theocracy we have right now is really bad, isn't it? What? We're not in a theocracy. Yeah, we are. We're in a really bad theocracy right now. The God keeps wanting more blood of infants. That's a terrible theocracy. It's because the God is us. The God is the state. The God is the people. So it's not whether we'll have dominion and authority, but which will it? Will it be Adam, sin, and death? Or will it be King Jesus, grace, and the Holy Spirit? That's the authority and dominion we want. And towards the end of this section, in verse 6 there, Paul repeats what he has said already before, and this time he talks about the, quote, letter of the law, end quote. The letter of the law, again, misunderstood, but the letter of the law is shorthand for a misuse and abuse of the law, separating the law from the spirit. Okay, the, the law, the letter of the law is simply a way of speaking about the death penalty, which results from a violation of the law. Think of it this way. What's the letter of the law? Well, it's as though the law delivered to you a document of sanctions and a list of sanctions against you, including but not limited to the death penalty. How many of here have lied? We've, we've lied. We've, we've sinned. Okay, we, we have this docket against us. And at the very bottom, because of your breaking covenant, you get to die. That's the penalty. The letter of the law is that. The letter of law in Paul's mind is a docket. It's a, a court-authorized sheet, a rap sheet of all the problems you've had. And the death penalty is there. But think of it this way. And he says in verse 14 that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. Well, I thought the law was unspiritual. No, he, he's not saying that the letter of the law is just the law, and now we're in the spirit, we have no law. He's saying the letter of the law is the condemnation. The true law is the law of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit in you. See, the difference in our newfound marriage isn't that in Adam we had to obey the law, but we couldn't. And in Christ, now as our new husband, we're his bride, and now we don't have to do anything with the law of God anymore. The difference is between being dead in our sins, condemned by the law for not being spiritually alive, on the one hand, and on the other hand, 
this newfound spiritual aliveness, which was wrought in us by the Spirit, thanks to the death and resurrection of Christ. So we have two husbands here. We have Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. We have death and life. We have fruits that are born in both of those relationships. There's the, the fruit of death in Adam. There's the fruit of life in Christ. There is um, righteousness in Christ and peace in Christ. And there's nothing but rebellion in Adam. So, and we also have this spirit contrasted with the letter, which is simply a way of saying that the formal charges that were brought against you, Christian, for violating the law, they have been abolished in Christ. Christ who abolished death. And now you have the life of the Spirit. So let me, I just have a few more things to say, and I want to try to hone in on this so that you can take, take deep spiritual inventory, as it were. One of the most important things, and kids, this is for you to hear too. One of the most important things we can know as Christians who are trying to obey the gospel of God, and it's something we must teach to our children, parents, it's that our union with Christ and the identity that we receive from it matters. Our union with Christ and the identity that we receive from it, it matters. With Christ, our new husband, comes a laundry list of blessings. Remember that we're in chapter 7 of Romans, this deep theological treatise. We're in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is in the shadow of chapters 13 through 16. And we're going to get to the Romans 13 passage, the famous one where we just have to do whatever the government says. Not what it means. But that's what many Christians think. Okay? So we're in the shadow of that great application. The application of the gospel. But we can, before we can get to that particular application, we have to know the legal realities that we now enjoy in Christ. The blessings are there, but what are they? What are the blessings in Christ that you have, dear church? Pay close attention to verse 4. If you have your Bible... Christ's death is our death. We share it with him. And the one thing his death does is abolish the sanctions of the law against us. In Christ, we're dead to the condemnation of the law. But notice what he says. He says that we've been married to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You see it? In verse 4. To him who has been raised from the dead. What Paul is describing here is our relationship to the law of God, the Torah, in Yahweh himself. It is good. It is a good relationship. And Paul already has already said that the law is, is good. We uphold the law. He said it in chapter 3. So it's not that the law needs to change when it comes to the new covenant. Though the administration of the law, again, changes. What changes is the people of God in Christ. You have been made a new creature. See, as a Christian, your identity in Christ is wrapped up in a person, not a concept. Your identity is wrapped up in a person. Too many people in our world want to be identified with a concept, like a word like pride. They want to be identified with some sort of concept that's out there instead of a person who is Christ. You are in Christ. You died with Him, you were buried with Him, and you were raised with Him. But the reason this works the way it does is because you were in Adam. You were in Adam at one point. And you and Adam had to do the same thing. Adam was crucified with Christ. Adam was crucified and buried with Christ. Adam had been raised in Christ. And though, now those who are in Christ are those who have been brought out of the grave for the purpose of a new marriage relationship. You went into the grave with Christ and you came out with him. 
The old husband died, but like you, he went into that tomb as well. And like you, Adam went out of it as well. See, for Paul, the resurrection is the pivotal point here. It's Christ Jesus who breaks the power of canceled sin. Under Adam, you, you, were, um, under Adam, you were without this resurrected law. You were dead. You were heavily sanctioned. You were condemned. But now you're in Christ, living a new life in solidarity with Jesus. You have left behind every aspect of life that was in Adam. Because guess what? Adam left it all behind too. You now possess the Holy Spirit of God, and you are now energized to serve the living God. We were held captive. Christ has set us free. That is the heart of the gospel. So what Jesus has done is buried the letter of of law. The, the writ of sanctions against us. And Jesus buried that condemnation in the tomb. And when he came out of the tomb, he didn't bring it with him. For his people, they now live in a right standing so that the law of God as a resurrected thing, we have the Holy Spirit now in place. We are a resurrected people full of the Holy Spirit. So church, you must live this way. That's what Paul says. You must live this way. You have to live this way. You must hold tightly to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He is the new husband. And the reason for the new marriage is for the purposes of bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. All right? We are to have godly children. And children, you are to be godly. You are to to pursue Christ every day. Every day. That's godly fruit. And at the end of verse 4, we bear fruit for God. He says, for God, we, we, glor- we are to glorify God. We labor each day for his glory. We educate our kids for the glory of God. Every righteous act, every pursuit of justice, standing for the preborn, standing against medical tyranny, as it were, all of those things, every disciple we make, every word we speak, everything we do now matters. All of it is righteous fruit for the glory of God. And the marriage is supposed to be fruitful. You have a new identity. You've been brought into this marriage of the Lamb. You have a new identity. You're a new person with new affections, with a new purpose. Okay, You don't have the old stuff anymore. You are new in Christ. You serve Him. You serve His law word. The condemnation is gone. You have been reinvigorated by the Holy Spirit to serve, which interestingly enough, Paul uses that very word in verse 6. Serve. So Christ is our new husband. He is faithful and he is true. And we are the bride of Christ. And together in this covenant of matrimony, we are called to produce the fruits of righteousness and joy and peace and love and self-control and kindness and goodness and gentleness and all the fruits of the Spirit. And so may our newfound identity compel us to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we could understand it. We're grateful for the words of Paul here in, in Romans 7, and, and we pray that we would be challenged by it, that we would remember that, that uh, the old husband has died and that we have died with him in Christ. And so as a result of that, Father, we, we do pray that we would bear the fruit of your Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We, we ask and pray that we would um, be a new humanity who reflects the kingdom of God in such a way as to invite others into this new humanity. So help us, we pray, to be filled with your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.